You are now entering Voice This, a podcast by Voice Tech Global educating listeners on conversational AI. Beware, this podcast contains facts that some listeners may find inspiring and uplifting. This podcast contains strong language and words related to conversational AI that will seem like jargon because they are intended for curious audiences only. Listener's discretion advised. Welcome to the Voice This Podcast. We have a special two-part episode for you, where your host Milani will be talking to veteran designer Erica Hall. Erica has been a powerful and provocative voice for evidence-based design since the late 20th century. She's the co-founder and director of strategy at Mule Design Studio, where in their own words, they help organizations approach design and technology as goal-directed humanists. She's also the author of Just Enough Research and Conversational Design. In this episode, Erica and Milani will discuss the patterns in business and design, which lead to attention-hungry digital products that often distract end-users from their day-to-day life as well as how we might bridge over the disconnect between empowering human-centered design and broader organizational goals. Hey, Erica. Welcome to The Voices Podcast. We're so happy to have you. How are you doing today? Oh, uh, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Thank you. Good, good. How have you been spending your quarantine or how has your life changed in the past year? Because we're celebrating a year now, right? A year anniversary? We are celebrating a year. I just saw, you know, social, various social media platforms show you your photos from one year ago. And today some photos came up of photos I took of various boarded up buildings and empty streets in San Francisco and that really I think brought him the fact that it, it's been a whole year yeah I love those yeah yeah like oh here we go yeah I've, I've been either inside my apartment working or outside I mean I'm, I'm lucky I, I live in San Francisco where the weather's good and there are a lot of parks so it's either in my apart my same apartment all the time doing work or you know outside riding my bike or something that's that's about walking my dog that's about it that's about it that's not that's not bad that's not a bad way to you know spend your year in quarantine and trying to navigate through whatever is happening in the world out there so that's good that's good Mm -hmm. so in terms of work for the past year has things changed what did that look like let's see well I'm trying to I can't remember what it was like before now so it's hard to say (laughs) whether or not it changed Maybe that's the question I should ask you. What happened a year ago? How were you like then? Yeah, really. I mean, the biggest change was that uh, a year ago, I had a lot of in-person workshops and speaking engagements and meetings on my schedule. And those all vanished relatively immediately. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big change. But the work part of it, like the consulting work, didn't change too much because like our clients have always been all over. A lot of them have been in New York City or, or you know various places around the country or around the world. And so that part of the work was only different in that I was at home doing it. Mm-hmm. Then one by one, a lot of the events came back as virtual events. And so it was really modifying what I was doing for a remote audience. And I, I know you mentioned kind of like what you're doing, but how, uh, why don't you give us a quick intro about yourself? Because you can kind of tell like, okay, there's some speaking engagements in Erica's calendar, consulting work, but exactly what is your day-to-day like and who is Erica Hall? <laughs> well, let's see. I'm the co-founder of Mule Design Studio and the author of Conversational Design and Just Enough Research. And I've been working in, let's call it, you know, digital design, I guess, for a very, very long time. And, you know, we founded Mule, like right at the beginning of the 21st century. And so we've worked with a a wide variety of clients. And it used to be more end-to-end full design projects. But then as more companies brought the design, like the strategic design and a lot of the disciplines in-house, a lot of our work changed to either some combination of you know strategy and research for the organizations or professional development for the practitioners uh, and so that's really where our work has gone in the in the last couple of years 
What sort of industries have you touched upon in these past couple of years? Or is there an industry you haven't touched? That's the real <laughs> question. Well, I mean, uh, we've, we've worked in a, like for a really wide variety of clients. It, it really, we would work uh, with any organization that we felt was doing something useful in the world. That's kind of our fundamental criterion. And, you know, we were always pretty selective about our clients. But we've done a lot of work in the past uh, couple of years. Like we've always done a lot of nonprofit work and a lot of higher ed work. But also because we do so much, uh, a lot of it now is like smaller engagements for a wide variety of companies. There are a lot of software companies in there, all different kinds. We've done a lot of work with media and journalism. Mm -hmm. Journalists make some of the best clients mm -hmm. because they're really good critical thinkers and they really get to the point and they don't, it's not to say they don't have politics, but they're very comfortable with a, a certain kind of, of give and take and arguing. And also they're super good about deadlines. Uh, and, you know, we've always enjoyed working with people who come, come from a journalism background. Yeah. But it's been a, yeah, really, I'd say pretty wide variety of, of clients. I love how you mentioned that you um, move for forward with clients who do good. Do you have a specific criteria? Is it something, do you have a meeting and kind of figure out if they align with your values? Like, how does that work? Well, it's really, it, it comes down to, you know, how they make their money, really. And if it's something that we, you know, feel good about, mm -hmm. or if they're doing something mm -hmm. that is on balance harmful or on balance, useful or good. So, it, I mean, it really is the like, does this add something yeah. the world needs? And a whole lot of, you know, for-profit companies fall into that. There's nothing wrong. And if sometimes designers uh, get a little bit uncomfortable, you know, talking about the transactional parts or talking about sales, but there's nothing necessarily wrong with providing something in exchange for money. And a lot of times that makes it really straightforward. Like I'm selling you a thing. Is the thing helpful to you? Did you pay an amount of money that you felt was fair and you were really clear on the price? There's there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Because like doing something useful is 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 the most important. Like we, we wouldn't work for somebody if we felt like they were bad people doing a bad thing. But a lot of times, uh, a lot of mission-driven organizations were also just easier to deal with operationally. You know, a lot of Fortune 100 companies just have uh, really complex operations that are just hard to deal with. And, and so most of the work can be dealing with the organization and not doing the work. So a really uh, another really important criterion is that most of our effort is doing the work we were hired to do, not dealing with the organization or the the relationship or the operational overhead got it got it that's very interesting that is very interesting so in terms of the work that you've done um so is there a different variety like what have you touched upon ever since day one because mm -hmm. i'm sure you've seen different products come and go or different processes what have you seen over the years well i i think one of the advantages i had is the first agency that i worked with you know, back in the 90s, had a view that of design as a strategic aspect of doing business. And so we've never looked at it in, in terms of like devices or platforms as the primary lens through which to look at design. It's always been what's the business problem that you're trying to solve or what's the organizational problem that you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And Looking at those problems that way and like, what are you and who, who needs to be involved? And because that was always our primary focus, I would say the production work changes, mm -hmm. but a lot of what I would consider the design problems we were solving were pretty similar because it was like, do you have organizational clarity about what makes your business successful? Do you know what capabilities you have in-house? Do you know who your audience is? Do you have assumptions about your audience? What do they actually need? What like tools and technologies are they already familiar with? How are you fitting into their context with what you're offering? And that's always the big part of the design challenge. 
And then the actual, you know, the the artifact mm -hmm. is uh, relatively straightforward once you figure that part out. Like we would, we were never interested in a particular uh, device or technology for its own sake. Like we were never like, oh, let's design a mobile app. It was like, okay, what are you trying to do? Who are you trying to reach? What value are you trying to provide? And then think about, well, what are what are all of the available like tools and technologies and, and how is what you're doing fitting in that? I mean, of course, the, the web stuff was a lot harder earlier on when, you know, CSS wasn't as well developed, when standards weren't as well developed and, and there was a lot more work that was just, okay, we need to replicate this system across every platform. And now, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to have one, like one content repository, you know, one code base and, and serve it across like multiple devices and think across channel and, you know, like that a, a lot at that part's much, much easier, but that doesn't mean, you know, and it's, and it's all, it, everything's in, embedded in, in people's lives, but that doesn't mean the design problems are solved. And some of the basics, like like one of the things that I think that's really has been happening in the past couple of years is, you know, design isn't getting better because the technology is easier to use. It's not getting better because the technology- It's not getting okay. better. Yeah, because it's not about the technology. It's about the business model. So if you look at something like the, a really simple example is if you look at access to news and information and publications. You know, I said we, we work with a lot of journalists and media companies. And if you try to, say, read stories online or, or go to different publications, the experience is often really bad, right? You go to a site, they immediately pop up an invitation to join the newsletter before you even had a chance to read anything. The paywalls are really aggressive and the advertising is often not great. And so if you think about that experience, uh, a lot of times it's not good. If you think about the criteria, like, is this easy to use? Is this intuitive? Does this reflect what I need? It's not better. And the reason it's not better, I think, is because the conversation of design has been avoiding it's like we were saying at the very beginning designers have been kind of avoiding the business side and saying like oh that's not my job to think about and because of that for that reason that it's actually the way the business works that determines what the user experience is and that hasn't been good because we say as an industry if you think about internet-based products and services haven't really thought through how to both make money and deliver a really good experience like they're separate it's like well we make money in ways that are often kind of skeezy and involves surveillance and gathering up data and then you know we kind of try to make that as not heinous as possible and that's kind of where we are with design in a lot of cases that is very interesting that's a really really interesting point so how do we get over that or like mm -hmm. how do we start these conversations as to at least figure it out because mm -hmm. i feel like not everybody thinks of it like that we don't really realize it's a problem until someone says it or like, mm -hmm. you know, our sales go down mm -hmm. or someone complains about it, it goes viral. But yeah. so then how do we start these conversations? Where do we go? Yeah. So if you say like, why is this hard to use? And I really encourage anybody who's interested in design to just kind of track, like, like look around you and think like what things are harder to use than it seems like they should be or annoying or strange. And I mean, the place we start is in thinking about the business goals of the organization mm -hmm. fundamentally. And so if a company exists to make money for its, its investors more than anything else, like if you take a venture-backed startup, the most important thing is increasing the valuation and having an exit event, you know, and if you happen to provide something of value along the way, that's great. And if, if it's a public company, it's about increasing the share price. And a lot of a lot mm. of what we talk about when we talk about technology, we're actually talking about finance. But people aren't having this conversation enough. Mm. And then designers wonder, they're like, why is my business doing these strange things that are bad from a user's perspective? And it's because the business goals and the user or customer goals are not aligned. So the, so the first step is to say, okay, let's design the business so that the way we make money is aligned with what's actually good for people. And if you don't have that conversation and make that alignment at the beginning, 
there's nothing you can do further downstream. Basically nothing, nothing at all. And so that's kind of where we are now because a lot of people are making a lot of money doing bad things. And if the whole goal is just to make as much money as possible, it's hard to back out of that. That is very true. That, wow, that is very, very true. And I feel like these are very tough conversations and very hard to kind of bring that mindset forward, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. not just a one person can bring it up. It's more of a, it's a mindset of everybody. It's a revolution, to be honest, like Mm -hmm. from day one. Mm -hmm. But that's very interesting. So like when you're, for example, in your work, when you're bringing this forward, how do you kind of take that on? So do you start these conversations? Do you bring that up with Mm-hmm. How does that start from the very beginning? Well, we have these conversations. I think w- one of the other things that, that's happened is that because a lot of design has gone in-house, there aren't as many people out in consultancies mm-hmm. leading the conversation from outside. And when when the people talking about design as an industry are all inside, they can't really say things that are critical of the way their organization is doing business. So a lot of what we do a lot of the place we start the conversation is just outside on our own because we can say whatever, (laughs) you know, I I can say whatever I want because I have my own company. And so that's fine. I have no investors, you know, and that's, it's really rare, right. For somebody to not be an employee and not have investors or shareholders to say something. And so, so we're kind of missing that agency voice. So we do that. And the other way is just by choosing the people we work with. Like we don't work with that many people. And I think at this point, it would, I don't know who would come to us that would want us to help them do something wrong that was, was wrong. Yeah. I think it's, it's sort of a self-identification thing. And if we're working at the level of, cause sometimes we'll go into an organization basically to do uh, some sort of training or workshop that functions more as a consciousness raising for them. Because it's not, we're not typically, with few exceptions, we're not actually directly designing the product anymore. We're helping them understand their audience or better define their strategy. And so, like, if some of these things come up, like if we're engaged in like a research and strategy project and and we say, oh, you know, here's, here's how to bring these things into alignment. Like that's, that's often the place will work. We'll say, okay, your business does this. People in the world need this. Here's the, here's the path forward. And, and that's really how we'll address that. But one of the things that I think a lot of designers, especially early in their careers, don't realize is how weird, how not straightforward a lot of business decisions are made. Because you think like, oh, clearly, you know, you'll make the decision that you know that makes money in this way or gives you this competitive advantage whatever it's not straightforward just because of the way organizations make money can be very strange and so the decisions will follow that and a lot of it has to do with the financialization of everything i mean even if you look at the conversation that people are having now around crypto and the blockchain and you know, NFTs. Mm -hmm. And people think the conversation is about art, but it's actually about investment. Yeah. You know, it's actually about capital because it, it, yeah, why own something? You own something so that you can, can have a store of value that hopefully you can then sell to somebody else. So, so you're thinking of it as, as an investment. Uh, A lot of things are, they're not the thing they're they're the abstraction of the yeah, thing yeah exactly you know they're the they're the investment they're the hope that something will grow in value and that makes it hard to make a good world of things because mm-hmm. it's a world of potential profit instead of a world of actual things people are using so the answer is capitalism it's like <laughs> yeah that's it that's literally it's just it. the, an- the answer is capitalism the answer is capitalism <laughs> yeah <laughs> Podcast is over. Episode's done. <laughs> the answer is capitalism. capitalism. Oh, yeah, you guys yeah. go figure out how to how do you do research or com- like just- whatever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the answer is capitalism. Like we're on Twitter, and the answer to everything is capitalism. But it 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 kind of is like the answer for digital. Like why is di- digital design like that? The answer is mostly capitalism. So yeah, yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah, and here we are. And here we are. <laughs> That's it.
Here we are. Here we are. I mean, but that, but there. I mean, there are. This is not to just be a total uh, downer and say there's nothing to do because there are businesses out there. Like if you look at anything you have that's either a service you use or a material object you enjoy that you paid for, you know, somebody designed that and it, it's good that it's in the world. It's good that, you know, I have my, my laptop and my kombucha and my headphones or my jacket or my chair, like all those things were designed. There are, you know, software services I use that are, that are designed. Like my bookkeeping software is great and fine. They're providing a service in the world. So there still are a lot of really straightforward things out there, but I feel like we're not talking about those enough. We're not talking about the kinds of design that I think sounds boring. They're like, oh, I made something and it was good and useful. There are definitely things out there with good intention, with the right intention that it's built for. But you're right. We don't talk about it enough because it's just so ingrained in our lives. So we're like, yeah, it does what it needs to do. Okay. And moving on, let's talk about something interesting. exciting. What's really out there. Yeah. (laughs) We have a lot of drama. I think, yeah, I think, I think we're hooked. Like a lot of people are hooked on the drama of like, oh, let's make this as big as possible. Let's scale or, or or let's use, you know, let's, let's use this new unproven technology or let's, let's see where this goes without really thinking it through. Yeah, I really think that a lot of design that needs to be done just sounds kind of boring, where it's like, oh, let's make this information easy to access. Yeah, let's let's do something that's just useful. Yeah, ew, boring. Ew, boring. Yeah, let's just, let's just cruise along and, you know, make enough money so that we have a good living. And, you know, yeah. yeah. What do you think in terms of the research that you've done, actually? So what type of technologies have been kind of up and coming what's being picked up what type of behaviors do you see in terms of like the devices being used or the type of technologies mm-hmm. and the age group what what was that like yeah yeah I, I worked on a really a really fun research project over the summer that was kind of about people how how they're using technology in their daily lives and you know what I learned was just it used to be that the internet was like cool and exciting and now now it's just you know, it's like, oh, there's daily life and then there's internet life. And that was an internet people like dress differently and were, were cooler than new technology. But now technology is embedded in like everybody's lives. It's just around us, especially this past year. You know, like people are just online constantly. And that's the thing. We're all online. We all have a bunch of devices. It's just part. And so that's so it can't all be good and exciting. So it's just yeah. part of our mundane reality. But it's it's necessary. Mm-hmm. You can't function without it. Like you can't access. Like there are a lot of services that you can't really access unless you're using technology. So so the good and the yeah. bad. It's all just baked into daily life now. Exactly. It's it's all over the place. I mean, the thing to remember is that everything is so like beyond beyond a certain point. Like technology is really cheap. Like when I was a kid or first started getting into doing internet things, like technology was expensive. Like the family had a computer in the living room, you know, and that was a slow computer and you had to dial up and use the phone. You know, I think they sell Android smartphones at the drugstore. (laughs) You know, you can get cheap phones and cheap plans and yeah and people just have devices sitting around and they they're pretty durable things last a long time like i got a a new laptop at the beginning of the pandemic since i was working at home more i got a 2014 macbook because i think that's the best one they ever made Mm -hmm. and i needed all the ports right Mm -hmm. they tried to like apple's bringing out all these like bigger phones with more lenses and they're trying to change the design of their laptop line and it got bad like even apple because they were trying to figure out how to get people to upgrade like this 2014 laptop i got like refurbished for 500 dollars is fantastic i want to go get another one in case this one breaks and that's kind of the problem is it stuff just less and people just have things around and they use what's just kind of around because like the biggest change is that so much is in the browser now yeah you don't have to like buy software and there's just there's so much and stuff's kind of free like i just use google docs and google drive and all that and i've started switching from keynote to 
uh, Google Slides. That's like from my perspective, free. I know Google has all my data, but at least Google does useful things with my data in terms of providing, you know, more services and better search results. Other people just hoover up the data and I'm like, what are you doing with it? You're showing me an ad for the pants I just bought. Yeah. So it's just around and it's, and, and you don't even think about it. You're just like, oh, I'm just going to like try this app and stop using this app. And then you find out like, oh, this app's cute. It turns out that the Chinese government made this app to steal my identity, you know, and that's, it's like this cycle. So it's not, it's not even, it's not the technology. Like there's not like a lot of like technology innovation. There's like media innovation. And I guess, you know, everything happening on TikTok is great, but it's not happening because of the technology. It's happening because, you know, teens are super energized and super creative. And they're doing amazing things with TikTok. Like, they made a whole musical. You know, did you see the Ratatouzical crowd-sourced? No, I haven't, actually. Yeah! So last year, this all started as, like, a kind of game on TikTok where people pretended that there was a musical based on Ratatouille. And it's real. It came into being. They performed it as a fundraiser for Broadway. And I think you can you can find it if you look it up because it was a live performance. But all these people just started pretending, like kind of role playing that they were doing a Broadway musical and actual people started writing songs and doing choreography. And, and they, this all just happened over TikTok. And I guess you could say it was a, a technology development, but things like that had you know, there there was Vine, but I think the way that, that the features in TikTok that encourage collaboration and like duetting with people and things like that made this possible. And that was amazing. That was like a new form of collaborative, spontaneous creation. It was kind of like the equivalent. It was it was sort of like I guess a flash mob, but it just happened because it, it the platform I'd say enabled people to just jump in and participate. Like they didn't need to ask permission. It was like, oh, everybody's got this sort of idea going on. I'll do this part. I'll do that part. I'll do this part. And they didn't have to coordinate with each other. It's mm-hmm. sort of spontaneously. It was an emergent musical. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anything like that has ever happened. Like I'm sure there I'm sure it's not the first. Like nothing ever happens for the first time. But it was amazing to kind of to see this happen where people would just jump yeah. in. And that was one of the most like with all the negativity going on, I think that brought a lot of joy to people to see like, oh, uh, here's something that people are doing just for the joy of it. And there was no gatekeeping. It was like, you know, once they they did the actual performance, they had some professional people do it, but it felt really just inclusive for people, for anybody with like TikTok and a a phone and could sort of jump in and do that. And then there's been like the sea shanty, you know, shanty talk coming along. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say that's really in terms of a vision for what being online could be, where it is really inclusive and it rewards because so much of the, like the social media platforms and the, the way money is made rewards outrage. Mm-hmm. It rewards negativity because mm-hmm. that's where the attention flows, right? The attention flows towards outrage. Mm-hmm. And the fact that here the attention flows towards, oh, people are singing and dancing and doing comedy. And so that's, that's been really, that's been one of the things that's been really nice to watch over this year about the creativity. And now there's roller skating, you know, TikTok's really, I would say, helped propel that as a trend or a renaissance of roller skating or whatever. So that's been super fun. Yeah. And that's been where a lot of the positivity has been, I think. But then I'm not sure how they're going to make money. You know, Instagram is now a shopping site where sometimes you'll see a picture of your friend's dog. And it's a but but I'd say the thing about Instagram and then you have to remember like, oh Instagram is part of Facebook. <laughs> Instagram is actually a really good shopping you know, you could talk about whether it's good or bad that yeah. people have easier ways of buying more stuff. But I'd say 
as far as an experience that's pleasant to use to like discover new stuff to buy, yeah. Instagram actually works well for that. So I don't, I can't even say like, I like to forget that it's part of the whole Facebook thing. But as far as a good experience for like people who've created products that are nice to look at, to have a place to sell them to people who are sitting there who can't sleep and have insomnia and are like scrolling and shopping. I'm totally not talking about myself. You know, that's not bad as a, as a marketplace for people to, to be able to, you know, to have their little stores. I mean, that's essentially where retail is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That Cause I guess now retail is going to where the people are going mm-hmm. because now that we don't have brick and mortar and with Instagram, what's really cool is that they're also bringing in features that are popular, right? They're bringing uh-huh. in TikTok, making it into Reels. They've brought the Snapchat story, made it into uh-huh. the stories that they uh-huh. have. Instagram is just doing whatever works and bringing it in, in-house, into one this, this uh-huh. one platform. And you're right, like the shopping experience is very easy because, you know, you're scrolling through. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, there's uh-huh. that little icon. Let me go check it out, see the price. That's it. Like. You know, yeah. it's super easy. It's simple. Exactly. Because the problem is you go, I think if you if you go to a store on the web on your your laptop, you get all that, all the pop-ups and things. And they can't do that on Instagram. It's like, here's our cute little products. Here's our, and the products have to look nice and they're in a little square. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's nice. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's rough trying to look for something on the web now and you go to the website and it's it's like I just can I shop can I shop before your newsletter please it's like every it doesn't matter what site it is it's I was looking up because I I I slightly sprained my ankle roller skating the other day and I was I, I was at the Harvard med site looking up some information about ankle ligaments and they were like subscribe to our newsletter yeah. like my friends my friends, I'm just here because I want to see the exercises for strengthening your ankle. Thanks for that. And it was like really big. It's like, don't you want, don't you want medical information? No, no. I'm just, I just want to read the article. Oh, that's so bad. That is so bad. I love when like they try to throw in coupons before you've even entered the website here's a 5% off. Like, yeah. you don't know what our prices are, but here's five. What about 10? Yeah. It's been a wheel. Yeah. Uniqlo. Huh? Yeah. You've been a Uniqlo. <laughs> yeah. It's so that's a lot. And I think the important in this question about the research, because yes, yeah, I've done a, several different projects that have touched on this because everybody's kind of having this experience. You know, everybody who can uh, do home-based work who isn't out there like in a grocery store or in a hospital, people who are at home working in their homes, Mm -hmm. are just online constantly and everybody's exhausted, right? Everyone's overwhelmed and all these sites and services are just competing for that little sliver of attention. And so people are tired, but there's nothing else to do and no other way to engage with other people. I think a lot of the way services are designed has been contributing to the exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And it's because of this competition for attention. So that's tough because I, I talk to people, they're online all the time. If you ask somebody to walk you, like the best research question is just walk me through your day yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like that's the most important thing to ask somebody mm-hmm. before you get into anything specific. And And people will just, talk about how they're online from before they get out of bed to before they go to sleep at night. And maybe they're not online in the shower, but maybe they've got Spotify on in the shower. And so they're technically still online. Guilty. Yeah. (laughs) Or you want to exercise. So somebody's got their Peloton or, Oh, I don't have a Peloton. I'm going to go jogging outside. I'm listening to podcasts while I jog or or I walk the dog or you know, I go to the grocery store and if you shop at Whole Foods, oh, you're actually inside Amazon now. <laughs> so this is really uh, hard on people. So there was this idea of like, oh, our lives are more convenient. We have everything at our fingertips. And, and then you also have so much coming at you. And there's a sense of helplessness, I think, that people have where it's like, I'm trying to do a thing. And then all of a sudden you get distracted or you're, you're going to a site you haven't gone to in a while. You can't focus. 
you've got your Zoom is rough, right? Being on, if you're in Zoom meetings all day or Microsoft Teams or whatever, then you go to watch TV and it's more, and then your television's smart now. So it's, everything's really taxing, like yeah. cognitively and emotionally taxing. And it's because it's also flat, yeah. right? Because it's all the same. It doesn't matter. You could be going to, you could be in a meeting or you could go be going to a friend's wedding. I'm going to a Zoom wedding this weekend. You could be going to a memorial service and it's like all the same. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard on people. Mm-hmm. Because it takes so much effort to mm-hmm. kind of control your experience, to really be intentional about things. Yeah, that's what's really been going on with people. Is everybody is just like at home, and there's always just stuff around you, like computers or phones around you. You're always online. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, and just kind of like ah. So that's that's kind of where we are with regard to technology. I think you've like summarized that really well. And especially the, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) like like, that is literally just the summary of 2020, our days right now. If we were to write a diary entry, just ugh is good enough. Like, I feel like that just covers everything. Uh, Yeah. Just, I've done nothing. Why am I so exhausted? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It is what it is. Is it though? Is it what it is? Like, is this how we need to go through our life for the rest of the, God knows how long this is going to be. Like we didn't obviously expect to like celebrate an anniversary for this. Um, But what do we do? Like in terms of like, as you mentioned, like it's not even the devices. It's like the fact that everything is on. Uh We have all these devices. We think like one's better than the other. We think Uh our phones are better than our computer because it's easier to access. Uh, now we think smart speakers or smart TVs are better because now we just tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. So is anything even better? What what do we do? Erica, please tell us. What do we do? <laughs> so the thing that the thing to think about it is if you if you think about it from the user's perspective, these things aren't separate. And I think that's the shift that's hardest for people who are designers or technologists working to develop a particular product or service or device is you think of what you're doing because that's your whole world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the way somebody experiences it is one small part of this whole mass of impressions and things. You know, it's just, they don't think about, uh, with rare exceptions, as a a discrete Mm -hmm. element. It's just part of everything. And it's, everything's interconnected, right? You can't, you've got to think about like all the devices people have and the way people switch among devices and all the things they're doing at the same time. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't watch TV without another device or two. It feels weird. Plus everybody's got subtitles on now, which is the most fascinating part. Yeah. Yeah. You watch the TV with the subtitles. It helps you focus. Yeah. It helps you focus. Well, yeah. A couple of things. Yeah. Yeah, it helps you understand what's going on. It's cool because you now know if you hear a piece of music you like, it says what the music is. Yes. And you can kind of look up and see what's going on without really, if you're not totally paying attention. You can watch movies on your second screen during meetings, probably too. You know, but there's there's so, there's so much that's going on. And it's all the same, like you're, what you're doing for work and what you're doing for leisure are basically identical. Mm-hmm. You could be working at any time if you have like a, a job that you can do like that. <laughs> oh, but is this, is this just our life now? Yeah. Like, what do we do? What do we do? And step one, I'd say is recognize that. Like before you think about solving it, you really try to step back and say, you know, ask the question, why are things like this? And don't just yeah. make assumptions because you might make an assumption of, oh, you know, people are, are using their devices in this way or having this experience or totally focused on what I'm doing and not doing 10 things at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the most important thing is just to take a hard look at reality. And that can be very challenging and maybe kind of ego destroying mm-hmm. too, to say like, oh, what are people really doing? How much attention are they giving what I'm working on? Because then once you look at that, then maybe you can take the pressure off yourself a little bit because the other thing that we've been hearing a lot about what's going on with people is if you have 
a job that you can do, you know, remotely from your home, but everybody's been working so, so much, right? Just this wild amount, no, no matter what they're doing. And then you say, why, you know, so I'm hoping that as we, as we come out of this, and I think some people are starting to recognize this to say, Hey, people don't have to be doing as much for particular outcomes. Mm -hmm. Cause, cause I think at the beginning, everybody was excited. Everybody was kind of lonely and kind of excited to be online and, and seeing people all the time. And now that we're recognizing like, Oh, this, what didn't end as quickly as we thought. And we have this, now we've learned some things about work yeah. and we've learned some things about design and we've learned that people can be productive from wherever. And I think we just have to do a better job of defining outcomes so that people can feel better walking away because people have to be able to take breaks from being online. Because mm-hmm. And now the kids, the, the children are like going to Zoom school and all this. So I think it's connected to, it is connected to research and it is connected to work Mm -hmm. because the clearer you are about what your business is or does or what your product or service is or does and how you deliver value to somebody's life, you can start from there and work backwards to, okay, how can the people inside our organization be effective? Mm while also working a smaller, like being, I'd say it's kind of a variation on that old, like work smarter, not harder. I think organizations can ask the question, how can we be more effective and less present? Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I think right now everybody's like in zoom meetings all the time and have to be present in front of each other. And that's so exhausting and then you're present in front of like your apps or your websites and Bank of America is like, I want to talk to you and have a conversation with you. And so we can, we can bring this around to research and like conversational design to say, okay, what we have to do with that is make sure that what sounds to us like it's convenient or exciting or delightful isn't like one more thing for another person. And we have to make it okay to disconnect the idea that you're paying attention or always present with like the amount of value that you're getting or that you're delivering. So as on the, mm-hmm. on say the designer technologist employee side, oh, how do we require as little attention from people and get the, get the most value out of them as a person working on doing whatever their job is. Mm-hmm. And then on the user or customer side, oh, how can we require a small amount of attention? And this is, this is a way of thinking that's uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of designers. Like, I have gotten in legit fights with people on Twitter about the concept of delight, right? Designers think, oh, I want to really delight people. No, no. Everybody should be delighted by their actual physical things they're doing, like the people they're with, their pets, where they live, what they're eating, right? If you're doing some technology thing, sure, a game, if it's designed to be delightful like that, great. Everything else should get out of the way as much as possible. Like stop defining success by how much attention you're getting from somebody. And I think that is going to be the hugest shift in the industry is saying like, okay, we're giving you something as a user, as a customer, Mm-hmm. that you're valuing and, and we're able to succeed because of that, but you don't have to pay any more attention to us than like the minimum. Instead of like the minimum viable product, I'd like us to be talking about like the minimum amount of attention, mm-hmm. the minimum disruption. It's like, okay, how can we do what we need to do? Little interaction, no delight. Let people rest, let people rest, you know, yeah. and disconnect. And I think that's where we're going to be heading next. Once we've gotten to the point of, oh, we could be online 24 hours a day. How about not? Mm-hmm. How do we turn off rather than keeping people on? That was like kind of what we used to aim for. Yeah. How do we get them on our product? Mm-hmm. Now it's like, how do we get them mentally off where they're not straining themselves, but at the yeah. same time, they're still mm-hmm. using our product to a point where it's okay. They're not 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really is just really going to require some changes because it's been just because of the business models. It's been really one-to-one in terms of if somebody's paying attention to us, we're making money. So we have to keep them paying attention to us. Yeah. And I would like to see, and there've been some attempts at this, but I think they've been bad because they haven't really thought through why people pay attention to things. They haven't stepped back and looked at the big picture mm-hmm. that what makes it hard for people to disconnect or why people might want to connect because it's got the right amount. Mm-hmm. And that's always hard for people. Like the, the enoughness, <laughs> like it's easy to go all or nothing. Like, Oh, we're going to maximize mm-hmm. or we're going to minimize. Yeah. Just offering something that's just, just enough of whatever at the right time mm-hmm. That's a really hard problem to solve. That sort of balance or equilibrium is just hard for humans to do. And I think that's where designers and technologists really need to be thinking about how we get to that enough place for people or else it's going to be a bad scene. And what does just enough mean in this case? I know I didn't want to like, like you have this in your conclusion and like in your book, I was like, am I going to be cheesy and bring it up? Yes, I will be. <laughs> but what is like, what is just enough? Cause I know in your book, you're mm-hmm. like, it's just enough. Just keep doing it until you feel confident that it's enough. But mm-hmm. where do we get that confidence? What does uh, just enough mean to everybody? How do we know that? Or at least how do we know for our customers at this mm-hmm. time period, especially the, you're mentioning how like, we don't want them to be present. So what is that space? Well, what is that? It follows, and it always sounds so basic to say this, uh, it all follows from really clearly defining your objective, like whatever future state you're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. And that has to be a qualitative objective. It has to be a description or else you'll be chasing numbers and kind of lose sight of reality. Right. It's like, it's like NPS mm-hmm. is supposed to measure satisfaction, but actually sucks for everybody. So if you think, well, because of the work we're doing, what do we want the world to be like in the, in the future? Like mm-hmm. when we're successful, what does that look like? And the more clarity you have around like why, you know, getting back to your why, why are you doing what you're doing? Yeah. What does the world look like? Because you've put this effort into it. Mm-hmm. Then you can back out from that. To say, okay, if that's our future goal, then what do we need to get there? You know, without creating any of these bad circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. To really think about like, what else is going to happen when we do this? You know, how are we really going to be changing? Like designers used to like to talk about changing the world a lot. And you think, well, how are we going to be changing the world? And the whole thing, not just in terms of the balance sheet, like that's one part of it. Like, okay. You need to make enough money so you stay in business. But like, what does that look like? You know, and there are many ways to get there. Mm -hmm. And the way you get there is by always having this discussion. It's not like you talk about it and you're done. So you're always kind of recalibrating and recalibrating. Mm -hmm. It's like steering a car when you drive. You know, what's enough steering? You know, when you're on the road, you don't understeer, you don't oversteer. You're not like, Go, weaving around mm-hmm. you're not going off the road you're steering the car mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. actually one of the fields i'm sort of as a side project kind of interested in is cybernetics and the word cyber there's word nerddom that comes from the greek word for steering like somebody who steers a ship oh okay and so everybody thinks it means like internet stuff (laughs) but what cybernetics means is like steering uh, a large a complex system because you can't control it but you can do things and you can set up feedback loops so that you kind of get a sense of like oh when i do this this has this effect on the system right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know you think about how flocks of birds move right no one bird controls the flock I don't, um, I don't study flocking, but I, I'm pretty sure that there are birds that are a little bit more in charge. Then they follow those like key birds. It's really fascinating to study the the movement of schools of fish and birds and things like that. Yeah. But that's what we're kind of working on as yeah. designers is is you can't make a complex system do exactly what you want it to do, but you can do something and then things will change. 
And that's more the mindset we need for this. It's like, where do we want to get this complex system to? How do we tell whether or not we're going in the right direction? Mm -hmm. And what things are all the participants in the system doing that move it more towards that desired state or further from that desired state into something Mm -hmm. bad? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In terms of like getting your objective and recalibrating as you're working, when do you know... Well, I guess you don't, do you know when it's right or do you care that it's right? Or do you just like, this sounds right for now? It, it all has to do with the scale of, you know, actions you're thinking of taking. Mm-hmm. And a, another way to think about it is uh, there was a, a Wall Street Journal article and I quote it all the time called The Power of Thick Data that was about qualitative versus quantitative. And the quote is, all business is placing a bet on human behavior. Like I use this quote a lot because that helps conceptualize it for people uh, who think in financial terms is you can think of placing a big bet or placing a little bet. Mm -hmm. If you're placing a really big bet, like we are betting the future of our company Mm -hmm. on this set of decisions, you need more confidence, right? You need more different types of data to make that bet. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing something that's like a small action or you're like, okay, this is a small thing. And if I'm wrong, it's only going to have a small effect. You could maybe just try it and see what happens. And it's developing that sense. And uh, something I talk about all the time is in life out, like not at work, but in our daily lives, we have a pretty good sense for this. Like if the stakes are pretty high, like we all make decisions in, in wacky, irrational ways. And this is just as true of people like in business and not in business. But you think like if you're planning a big vacation, like back when we did those things and we took vacations. Like, Sorry, what is that? Can you define that for me? Thanks. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, on an airplane <laughs> at the tube, the tube that, that goes up above the earth. So if you were planning, say you hadn't taken a vacation in five years, and you were taking three weeks off, like you'd saved up all your vacation time, you'd saved up all this money. Think about planning that vacation. Like you would want to make sure that you were going someplace that you'd enjoy and that if other people were going with you, you know, like family members or partners, friends, whatever, that they'd enjoy it too. You'd check out, you'd look at photos, you'd, you'd read reviews, mm-hmm. you'd check your budget to, to think in advance, like, okay, what's important to me on this vacation? Is my money going to go towards like adventure activities? Is my money going to go towards eating out really nice meals? And you would put a lot of research work into this vacation. Mm -hmm. But if you were just going someplace for the day or the weekend and you're like, oh yeah, we're just going to drive up the coast. And it's something like that you do regularly. You're like, oh, let's just try it. You know, Mm -hmm. same thing with a restaurant. I mean, we'll just try this restaurant because whatever, that's a little bet. So we do that all the time. And sometimes we're in a mood where we're like, you know what? Surprise me. Like maybe I'm tired of planning. I want to do something that's not planning. And I don't feel like if it doesn't work out, I'm not, the stakes for me aren't high. If you're like, oh, whatever. Like what's important to me isn't having a certain kind of experience. What's important to me is having a new experience. And and you'll shift what you do. You're just like, I'm going to get in the car and stop at the first restaurant that looks good or the first hotel that looks good. Mm -hmm. That's how we think about our decisions in regular life. The same thing is true in business, except everybody's afraid of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So, so there's all this work in business and working with data and working with analytics that's, that exists solely to provide the illusion of certainty. Mm And a lot of times it's worse. It's a worse basis for decision-making because people will work with these context-free numbers and say, oh, this number's going up, you know, without really thinking like, is that the right number? What does that number mean? Yeah. Whereas if you actually said, what, what outcome are we going for? What are all the kinds of, of information we could use to increase the chance we're successful? Mm-hmm. If you just put it like that, people are smart. Mm-hmm. They could totally figure that out. But a lot of businesses are stupider because they want to appear more certain than is possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so everybody who's really, really smart. Mm -hmm. So people who are super smart about 
picking a place to live or buying a car or going on vacation get really stupid when they're allocating budget because of this fear and they don't do the same things and they think they have to do a weird different set of things where it's exactly the same. You have success criteria, you have an amount of time and an amount of money and you've got other people you need to involve in the decision. It's like if you're planning a trip with your partner and you have shared finances and you, and the first thing you do is you say, okay, what kind of experience do we each want to have? Because you'd be a bad person if you said, okay, I'm going to take all this money that we both saved up and we're only going to do a thing that's fun for me that you actually hate. Like if you had a, like one person wanted to sit by the pool and the other person wanted to like hike up a mountain and you like blew all your shared finances on this like strenuous hiking trip, people know that that's a bad thing to do. <laughs> you know that you have to involve the other person mm -hmm. whose time and money, it's like their time and money too. So in an organization, it's like, who else is spending time and budget on this? Yeah, yeah. What does it mean to them? Like, what are the stakes for them? If you do that, it's the same. But people get stupid because they're like, okay, we have to pretend that we're like <laughs> rational and make decisions based on numbers. Oh my gosh. You know, and because you're pretending, you're doing things in a worse way. Yeah, no, I see it. Because if you're okay with doing it in real life, why not do it at work? Mm -hmm. Why do we immediately turn off and just get, no, 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 we need to look into these tools that we're given and yeah. navigate through and create dashboards and whatnot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whereas, whereas you take those same people. And you're like, okay, you're vacationing in a new place. What would you do? Oh, I talked to some people who went there. Uh, I look at a lot of photos on Instagram. I go to the website and read all the reviews. I check the average prices. I pick the time to go so I could optimize between nicest weather and lowest rates and decide on the slider. Okay, if I go on the shoulder season, it's a little cheaper. Or, oh, we don't care. We've saved up money. We're going to go at the best time and have the best of everything because we've saved for this. It's the same decision-making process, except people are better at it when they go on vacation. Right. Treat every project like it's a vacation. <laughs> Seriously. And, you, and There you go. That's what I was going to close that off. Yeah. And you'll be so much more successful if you do that. There you go. That's it. That's literally. So is this how you do your user research? Is this how you do work with your clients? You just treat them like you're treating your vacation and how you plan it. We're all going on a trip together. Absolutely. And the best part is that like the research work, everybody, the word research really trips people up because it mm -hmm. sounds like the outcome, the output of the research has to be this like boring report, but this isn't Academic, and I'm not going to say academic research is boring. Academic research is interesting to other people who work in that field or people who need it, who consume reports like that. You don't need to have the same sort of output. Like what you need is everybody knowing where you're going on vacation, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the outcome. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and it should be fun because learning things is actually fun when you know how you're going to use the information and when you're getting the right information. It's more fun, whatever your job is, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're a designer or a writer or an engineer or, you know, the CFO or anything, your job is more fun if you think you have a better chance of success and if you think that you're doing something useful in the world, if you're benefiting somebody or you're meeting your goal, that makes your work more meaningful. Yeah. And so if everybody goes on this like research journey together, this design journey, whatever you're working towards, wherever you're gathering information. Mm -hmm. If you're, if you all treat this, like we're planning a trip we're taking together, because you are, you're spending your time, you're spending your resources, make it fun and interesting and better for everybody who's on this journey with you. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really what you want. And it's when people don't have these discussions, when they treat it like it's something that it's not, that's when things get bad. Yeah. When people can't have these open discussions, like, oh, wait a second, the place I want to go to, like, is very different from the place you want to go to, right? Like, if the engineers want to go to Performance Island, and 
the designer wants to go to portfolio piece for my next job beach, you know, <laughs> that can be very different. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I, this is perfect. I feel like in this episode, it's really good to know that user research should be treated like a vacation. So it's not like every process is the same. It's what's your outcome? What do you need to do to get there? Use what you got. Literally, that's it. Totally. That's how I think about it. Who would have known that it'd be this simple? <laughs> it, it, it is that simple. Like the only reason it's not simple mm-hmm. is because people are so worried that somebody they work with is going to call them out. And so the more collaborative and communicative your team and your organization is, the better data you're going to be able to gather. That was part one of the Voice This Podcast interview with Erica Hall. Erica gave us so many valuable insights and so much discussion to process that we're giving you a part two of this episode in two weeks. Erica left us with a lot to think about this week, from the contention that can emerge between humanist design principles and profit-maximizing practices, to how we can leverage minimalist design to empower people in a constantly connected world. I believe there was also mention of a decentralized, emergent, creative practice that led to an unofficial and unlicensed Ratatouille musical? Food for thought, for sure. Join us in two weeks, where the discussion with Erica and Milani will continue into the topic of design research. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast player, and be notified for new episodes. And don't forget to check out the show notes. If you want to know more about Voice Tech Global and this podcast, be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at VoiceThisPod and on Voice Tech Global's Medium page. That was Voice This. We'll see you next time.